You're listening to the Eltham Baptist Church Podcast. A few days ago when I arrived, I, in preparation for the evening, I thought I'd better, you know, kind of check protocol. So I said to Stuart, do I need to have a, a tie, a suit and tie? What, uh, what would be good for uh, Eltham Baptist? And he's, I realized when I got here that the better question would have been, do I need to wear shoes um, when, I, when I'm up front? Uh, I, I felt way overdressed when I prayed with the worship team before the service. There was a, a Presbyterian pastor who was sitting in his study one morning, and the phone rang. It was an older woman from the community. She, uh, she had bad news. She said to the pastor, my dog died yesterday. Would you do his funeral? Well, this Presbyterian pastor said, look, ma'am, I don't do dog funerals, but you probably could call the local Baptist pastor. He'd probably do it for you. <laughs> She said, okay. She said, but what would be a fair honorarium? Would, would $500 be enough? He said, hold on there. You didn't tell me your dog was Presbyterian. <laughs> Do you know what fish will travel up to 1,000 miles just to lay its eggs? Anyone? Salmon. Is this working? There you go. When male and female salmon reach their maturity, they will instinctively make their way back to the exact place where they were born, sometimes within just a few feet. It's unbelievable. It's a journey that not only involves great distances, but extraordinary struggle. Over a period of several weeks, without even stopping to eat, these adult salmon will battle upstream against strong currents, rocky rapids, shallow riverbeds. At times, they will leap over waterfalls, some as high as five meters. Only the most fit, only the strongest survive. Those fortunate enough to make it will lose over one-third of their body weight. It's an incredible feat. Unfortunately, the journey of a thousand miles sometimes ends very, very badly. <laughs> we might laugh, it's just a fish. But let me tell you, that salmon's journey is sometimes our journey. I wonder how many of us have set out in pursuit of a, a dream. How many of us have, have set out in pursuit of a noble, worthwhile venture. And from day one, we're all in. I mean, we give it 100%, our best shot. We plan, we, we budget, and we spend wisely. We toil, we sacrifice, we persevere against all sorts of hardship and adversity and setbacks. With Herculean effort, we will leap over every obstacle that we meet. And as we approach the completion of our quest, Reality opens its mouth and swallows us whole. You know as well as I do, not all things on earth have a happy ending, do they? Because we live in a broken world. Reality teaches us that not every hospital patient gets well. Not every student graduates from the university and lands a high-paying job. Not every business decision makes a million dollars. 
Reality teaches us that not every child grows up to adulthood. Not every conflict or family problem is resolved this side of eternity. Life is not always filled with happy endings. Sometimes as Christians, we, we give people the impression that, that when we become a Christian, that God's going to reward us with a trouble-free life. Nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, Jesus warned his disciples of the exact opposite. If you have the outline that uh, was provided for this evening, the first verse there, Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. <laughs> Count on it. You can bet on it. Peter echoed the very same sentiment in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. He's writing to believers who were scattered throughout Asia Minor, suffering all kinds of persecution on account of their faith. And Peter said, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering as though something strange were happening to you. Because it's not strange. It's perfectly normal. Now look at those two passages. You'll notice that in those two passages, God didn't tell us why. It's not mentioned. He simply told us to expect trials. You and I should expect that we're going to encounter a few rainy days in this world. But it's the why that has plagued the hearts of men and women since the beginning of time. What's the reason behind our pain? Why do we have to go through suffering? Why is it that bad things seem to always happen to good people? I mean, that was the question that, that resonated in the heart of Job. It was the question that was familiar to the cry of the psalmist as you read through the psalms in the laments. Why? And I would submit to you, it's the cry that many of us have in our own heart today. Why? Now, I realize for many of you, this isn't just an academic exercise. This isn't just a, a theological banter that you have over a cup of coffee when you're sitting at Starbucks because this is a real issue, a personal issue. You've encountered a fair amount of pain in your own life. You've gone through perhaps a loss of a child, a loss of a spouse, a loss of a loved one. You've had to wrestle with perhaps serious life-threatening illnesses. You've stood at the bedside of a loved one and watched them go through inexplicable suffering. I wish I could stand up here this evening and, and give you the perfect answer from God, but I can't. No one can. Suffering and evil in the world are among the most troublesome issues that we face. Many throughout history have attempted to reconcile their presence in this life with the whole notion of God. Albert Einstein, for example, he was a smart man. He was smart enough to believe in God, but he really didn't believe in the God of the Bible. He argued that God could not possibly be all good and all powerful at the same time. In his mind, those two were incompatible. There's a popular contemporary book written by a Jewish rabbi comes to the very same conclusion. It's titled, Why Bad Things Happen to Good People. It's written by a gentleman by the name of Rabbi Kushner. In it, he comes to the very same conclusion. He basically argues that God would like to prevent evil, but he can't. Um, he's all-loving, but he's not all-powerful. Listen, the Bible's very clear in its teaching. The God who created the universe and all that we enjoy within it is both infinitely powerful and infinitely good. 
what philosophers and novice theologians fail to recognize is that you and I were finite beings. And thus, by definition, we are finite in our understanding of this world. We don't possess perfect knowledge. Our vantage point is obviously limited, both by space and by time. Rarely do we get to see the beginning and the end of things. We don't get to see how every event and every situation fits together in the big picture. So when you and I glance across the tapestry of life, it looks like an ugly mess. All we see are random strands of yarn and random knots. Life's landscape looks completely chaotic, downright messy, but it's really not. It's just that we haven't been given the privilege to see what's been woven on the other side. The Apostle Paul described our incomplete, limited perspective in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12. Paul said, in this life, we see only a poor reflection as though we were looking into a clouded mirror. In other words, our insight is impaired in this life, and it has to do with our finite nature. One day, God's going to make everything crystal clear. But until then, we sort of meander around in the fog. Now, I don't want to suggest that we're entirely blind, because I do think that there are some things we can know in this world. In fact, I would argue that there are a handful of essential, eternal truths that you and I can grab onto, cling onto, that will illuminate our journey in life and will guide us along from faith to faith that will give us a sense of security, a sense of peace, a sense of serenity as we encounter especially those difficult days of suffering and pain. So that's what I'd like for us to focus on this morning, the eternal biblical truths that will help us navigate life's challenges. The first is this, let God be God. It's important that we start here having an accurate understanding of God, having an accurate understanding of the character of God, what he's like, because far too many people in this world, they don't have a clue. Have you ever heard of a glamour photo shoot? Anyone? Glamour shots? You know what those are? You know, that's where people go into a professional studio and there's a team of professional makeup artists and professional hair designers and professional fashion designers and, and they spend the entire day uh, sort of manicuring the person and turning them from an average everyday look into something glamorous. It's not just a 15 minute touch up, it's a total transformation. Well to help me make this first point of my outline, I went out myself recently and I thought I'd, I'd get my own glamour shot. I, you're laughing. I know, it's, it's something usually women do, and uh, teenage girls, but there's no law that says a guy can't go out and get a glamour shot, so I thought, why not? I'll get a glamour shot and make it part of my message. So I thought I'd share with you uh, this, this evening. <laughs> now, I know uh, that photo doesn't really do me full justice, um, but okay, uh, I confess, it's not really me. Uh, it's hard for you to believe, but if I were to have a glamour shot, that's what I'd like myself to look like. Here's my point. Ladies, I'm over here. Let me get off that picture here. <laughs> many, many people in the studio of their own mind, they've created a glamour shot of God. That's essentially what they've done. 
doesn't even remotely reflect who he truly is, what he's truly like. They have done a makeover. They've airbrushed away certain attributes of God, those uncomfortable attributes of God that they'd, they'd rather not really think about. They've creatively photoshopped various facets of God's character to make God who they'd like him to be, but not who he truly is, not who he genuinely is. If we want to navigate the challenges of life in a spiritually mature way, then we got to start right here. Let God be God. Let him speak for himself, which I might add, he's done quite eloquently in his word. We're not going to get an accurate portrait of God from our surrounding culture. It's not going to happen. We're not going to get an accurate portrait of God from Hollywood movies, from best-selling novels or gossip magazines. We want an accurate portrait of God, we better go uh, to the word of God. Now, there are two things concerning the nature of God that I think are most relevant for this evening. There are many attributes that could be highlighted, but I think two that um, would do well here as we consider uh, this, the, the nature of God in this context. Number one, God is sovereign. Now, it's a phrase that we throw around a lot in Christian circles, but I wonder how many of us could really define it. If I were to put you on the spot and say, go ahead, tell me what that means. What does it mean, God is sovereign? Well, it means God is enthroned above the heavens and he reigns over the affairs of this world, every single affair. It means that God is in complete control and he gets to decide what he allows and what he doesn't allow in each of our individual lives. So no matter what situation you're facing right now, let's bring this down to some practical implications, Whatever situation you're facing right now, I can tell you with the authority of Scripture, God is not in the least bit surprised. Not at all. Your particular situation hasn't caught God off guard. He's not pacing back across the span of heaven, wringing his hands, wondering how things are going to work out for you. Daniel chapter 4, verse 35, we read this. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. The Bible is unmistakably clear. God is all-powerful. And nothing, absolutely nothing happens in your life, in my life, without his express written consent. Second important truth that I want to note about the nature of God he doesn't have to explain himself. This is where it, it gets a little bit too close for home. God is not required to clarify his purposes or defend his purposes for whatever he does. I mentioned Job earlier. The Bible says that when Job was alive, there was no man on the entire face of the earth that was more righteous than Job. Imagine, not a single person on the entire earth more blameless than Job. One day the Bible says Satan came into the presence of God. And Satan said to God, the only reason why Job serves you is because you've blessed him. You know, The only reason why Job serves you is because you've given him a cushy life. But if he didn't have such a cushy life, he'd turn around and he'd curse you. So God allowed Satan to test Job. You know the story. Not long after that conversation there in the throne of heaven, 
Job lost everything. He lost his oxen. He lost his sheep. He lost his camels. He lost his servants. He even lost his own children, all of them. And if that wasn't enough, Satan went back a second time into the presence of God. And he got further permission to attack Job's physical health. And the Bible says that from the bottom of Job's feet to the top of his head, Job was covered with agonizing sores. So there's Job when we meet him early on in the book. He's totally devastated. In the midst of ashes, he's, I would guess, repulsive to look at. He's experiencing unrelenting pain. And if that's not demoralizing enough, his wife comes up to him and says, why don't you just end it? Go ahead, curse God and die. Wow. Do you remember Job's response when his wife said those words? Job looked at his wife and said, shall we accept only good from God and not trouble? And for the next 35 chapters, you and I get a chance to pull up a chair and we watch Job and his friends wrestle with this whole question surrounding pain and suffering in life. There are times when Job, you see him completely overwhelmed with grief, overwhelmed with sadness to the point that he even, he, he regrets the day that he was born. And then there are times when you see a spark of faith. It surges, and Job talks about his love and his loyalty to God. But what I find most noteworthy throughout those 35 chapters are the times when Job sort of just pauses and deeply reflects, you know, I really would like an audience with God. I'd like to be able to, to ask God to explain himself. I kind of want to know what are the reasons behind my, my pain and my suffering. And yet, chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter, we don't hear anything from God. Nothing. Not so much as a peep. And then finally, we get to chapter 38, and God breaks his silence and speaks to Job out of a whirlwind. What did God say? Did he speak a gentle word of comfort to Job? Did he say to Job, look, Job, I'm really sorry for all that you had to go through, but I want you to know there was an eminent purpose for all that you went through. It was a test, and you passed. Congratulations. God bless you. Is that what God said? Nope. God doesn't explain himself at all. In fact... Not only did God not talk about his conversations with Satan, God didn't even talk about the fact that, you know, that there was going to be some sort of great harvest of righteousness for all that Job had to suffer. God went to the point of just asking Job a series of questions. Three straight chapters worth of questions. Questions like, uh, hey, Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Did you mark off its dimensions? Did you put the boundaries for the seas, Job? Tell me. Uh, Job, do you send lightning bolts on their way? Does the horse get its strength from you? Does the hawk take flight on account of all of your wisdom? Three chapters worth of those sort of questions. Those aren't your typical questions. Those are what we call rhetorical questions, which means God wasn't expecting Job to answer any of those questions. Those questions were posed in such a way to drive home a simple truth. And that truth is, God is God, and we are not. We need to come to grips with that. God is God, and we are not. 
it may be very difficult for us to accept, but you and I are probably gonna go to our graves with a lot of unanswered questions in this life, and that's okay. Because the walk of faith involves a humble willingness on our part to believe that God is good in spite of all the evidence to the contrary. Think about that. We have a humble willingness to acknowledge the goodness of God in spite of the fact that the evidence before us leads us to think contrary. Let God be God. There's a second eternal biblical truth that you and I need to embrace as we seek to navigate life's challenges. It's this. Though we may never, this side of heaven, understand the purpose to our pain, there is never, ever pain without purpose. Pain is never without purpose. And there are a number of ways in which God will use pain. God will use suffering for our good, for his glory. Those of you who are news buffs, you probably realize that hardly a day goes by where you don't see some sort of horrendous story coming out of the Middle East because of what is happening with the civil war in Syria and even in a larger context, what is happening with ISIS as it advances and terrorizes the region. There's one particular area in northern Iraq where the Yazidi Muslims lived as a group and they were forced a few months ago to flee their homeland. You read through their stories, their personal stories of what they encountered when ISIS came through, and it's absolutely heart-wrenching. You can hardly finish a story because of just the depth of treachery and uh, horrible nature in which they had to suffer. But what's not making the mainstream media are the thousands of Muslims who are coming to faith through the various relief efforts that Christians who are in that area um, who are engaged in showing and sharing the love of Jesus Christ. What do we need to see here? God will sometimes use suffering to bring people to himself. It sounds hard to imagine, but God will sometimes use heartache to get the attention of people who've never experienced his forgiveness. God will sometimes use suffering to get the attention of people who've never experienced the joy of knowing that they can have eternal life through Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, for God sometimes uses sorrow in our lives to help us to turn away from sin and to seek salvation. We should never regret that kind of sorrow. There's another purpose for pain. God will sometimes use pain to develop our character, to make us more like Jesus. Romans chapter 5, verses 3 to 4 we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance and perseverance proven character. It's the old saying, no pain, no gain. Or as I like to say, no pain, no pain. I mean, why be a masochist about this whole thing? <laughs> Depth of character, uh, refinement of virtue, maturity of wisdom, these are all priceless commodities that we strive to get, but they come through the process of hardship. Let me ask you, where do we learn forgiveness? You think we learn forgiveness by picking up Webster's Dictionary and reading its definition in the dictionary? You don't learn forgiveness that way. We learn forgiveness when we're betrayed. 
by a close friend. When we're hurt, that's where we learn forgiveness. When do we learn courage? We learn courage when we're attacked and persecuted. We learn discernment not through success. We learn discernment through failure, through challenge. So God will use pain to help us become more like Jesus. And there's a third way in which God will use pain and suffering to accomplish his good. He will use pain to lovingly discipline his children. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 10 through 11, the writer of Hebrews says, our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good that, he may, that we may share in his holiness. No discipline at the time seems uh, favorable, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness for those who have been trained by it. Now, if you're like me, we usually don't think of discipline as something good. Uh, that's because we confuse discipline with punishment. Punishment basically is nothing but retribution. It's payback. But that's not discipline. Discipline is a loving way in which we seek to correct someone's behavior looking to the future. In other words, punishment is looking to the past. Discipline, as a parent will know, is something that you do to change a person's direction, their behavior, their attitudes, so that in the future they reap a harvest of righteousness. And so sometimes God will discipline us through difficulty for the purpose of a righteousness that lies ahead. One final truth that you and I need to embrace as we seek to navigate life's challenges, and I, I struggled to come up with sort of a catchy phrase, something that would just sort of resonate, where we could just sort of repeat to ourselves, and uh, the best I could do, this isn't it, this life. This isn't it, this world. Everything that you and I see around us, everything that we enjoy, that we hold dear to our hearts, this isn't it. This is just the warm-up act. This is just the, the dress rehearsal, so to speak. If we use more of a familiar Christian expression, we would say, this is in our home, this is not where our citizenship is, we have citizenship in heaven, you know, we're just sojourners in this land, we're aliens wandering until we get to a better land. They all convey that simple truth, this isn't it. There's coming a day when suffering will cease. In fact, I would go so far as to say suffering will be completely forgotten. Now, I say that knowing that uh, people might misunderstand and think, well, am I, am I minimizing the suffering that we go through in this world? Not at all. Some of you, I'm sure, have had to face some terrible, difficult things, things that I can't even uh, imagine. But I want you to consider for a moment several verses of Scripture. I'm going to bring up three verses, one right after another. They're written by the Apostle Paul. Paul was a man who experienced far more pain than most of us will ever have to encounter in life. The Bible says on five separate occasions, Paul was whipped 39 times. Three times he was beaten to a bloody pulp with rods. There was an occasion in Lystra where an angry mob dragged Paul to the outskirts of town and they picked up big rocks and they stoned him to the point where they thought he was dead. He actually spent a day and the night uh, in the open sea. He was shipwrecked a number of times. And if that wasn't enough, 
For a number of years at the end of his life, Paul rotted away in a Roman prison cell. So with all that in mind, let's consider these three verses. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Romans 8, 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed to us. And 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. You may experience 50 years of chronic pain every day, every week, every month, every year of your life. But after 900 million years of perfect bliss in the presence of God, if someone were to walk up to you and say, hey, how's your existence been as a person? My guess is you probably are going to say, oh, it's been great. It's been fantastic you know, being with God. And those 50 years of earthly sufferings, they aren't going to be worth comparing to the eternal glory that you experience. Let me close by saying this. God's ultimate answer to the question of why is there suffering in this world, it's not found in words. God's answer is found in a person, the Lord Jesus. Jesus is intimately acquainted with everything that we go through in this world. He left perfection in order to embrace suffering for us so that we might one day embrace perfection. Have you experienced mistreatment? Maybe you've gone through rejection in life, relationships at school. The Bible says Jesus was despised. He was tortured, ultimately rejected by the very people he came to love. Has your heart been broken? Do you daily taste the salt of your tears? Jesus was a man of sorrow. He knew grief. He tasted tears. Perhaps a close friend has turned against you, betrayed you in life. Jesus was betrayed for a measly 30 pieces of silver. Listen, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, it doesn't eliminate pain. Not at all. But our pain becomes his pain. And our tears are mingled with his tears. There is no one who understands suffering better than Jesus. And we do well to turn our gaze and fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith as we run the race in this life. Let's close with a word of prayer. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are God, that you are sovereign and all-powerful, and that you reign over the affairs of this world. Nothing ever surprises you. Nothing escapes your careful attention. And though there are times we are overwhelmed with questions that begin with that word, why, we affirm our trust in you. We know you love us. We know that all things work together for good to those of us who love you. And I pray, Father, that you would give us a sense of your presence today. Allow us to experience anew the sufficiency of your grace. And it's through Jesus we pray. Amen. You've been listening to the Eltham Baptist Church podcast. 
If you'd like to hear more or simply pay us a visit, go to www.elthambaptist.net.